Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Dr. Gladys McCary. Dr. Gladys, as she is known, is 102 years old and still a consulting doctor. She practices what she now calls living medicine, and we're going to hear more about what that is. She's a remarkable person, I would say a force of nature. At age 100, she started penning her book that was released in May of this year. It's called The Well-Lived Life, a 102-year-old doctor's six secrets to health and happiness. Some people refer to Dr. Gladys as the mother of holistic medicine. She's the co-founder and past president of the American Holistic Medical Association, now called the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine, as well as the co-founder of the Academy of Parapsychology and Medicine. She lives and works in Scottsdale, Arizona, and is the mother of six children and a great-great-grandmother. Here's a meeting you won't soon forget with Dr. Gladys. Dr. Gladys, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Great to be with you. You begin your book, The Six Secrets to a Well-Lived Life, talking about this notion of finding our juice, our juice in life. And that is part of what fuels us. And I'd love to know right here at the start, where do you find your juice now at this point at 102? Well, you know, I don't think it's ever changed. Uh, much. I mean, it's grown, it's developed, it's it's morphed into different places of things and different ways that the world could accept it. But the fact of the matter is, I think that all of us are born here for a purpose. We have a reason for being here. We aren't here randomly just plucked, plucked around and post. I think our souls know where and what it is that we came to do this lifetime. And and it's kind of nice if you know early, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes 
you go through a lot of different um, uh, trials, sort of like internships or something like that to find out where you fit. And then if you're looking for it, I, I guarantee you'll find it. But you won't find it, find it if you don't look for it. So we are looking for the thing that lights our souls up, what makes you, what, what made you create this whole concept and now feel that this is why you're here. You know, you know why you're here. And when we recognize the reason that we're here, then we can really share it with other people. Prior to that, we're sharing it, but but we can share it from deep inside ourselves and 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 it makes a difference to other people. How how would you language the reason you're here and when you first discovered it? How did you first discover it? I came here to be a physician. I came here to be a doctor. When I played with my dolls and my sister wouldn't let me play with hers because mine were all sick and I had to work with them. <laughs> and she wouldn't let me do that to her dolls. So, but it was, I knew when I was two that I was, I I didn't question it. I knew I was a doctor. I have little, three little great, great granddaughters who, when they were two, told their parents they were doctors. I had one who didn't want to get a COVID shot. So she was objecting to that. But, but when she came home, she stood in front of her grandfather, who's my son, who's a retired orthopedic surgeon. And she puts her shoulders back and looks up at him. And she says, next time when I get to be a doctor, I'm going to be a good doctor. She didn't like the shot. <laughs> so, you know, it, when I think, a lot i think we all come in with a special place in my mind it's kind of like a huge jigsaw puzzle and each one of us is a piece in that jigsaw puzzle and there isn't anybody else that can fit in there i've tried to put other pieces in jigsaw puzzles and they don't work and then if you have made a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle you put the whole thing together and one piece is missing you drive yourself crazy looking for that one piece because each one of us are essential in the place where we are and who we are. So it's finding that inner knowing about who and what we are and what we're, what, what we really want to do, you know, what, what it is that really makes our souls sing. And when you find that, you know it. Now, in, in your case, you knew from age two that you wanted to be a physician, and here you are at 102, still a consulting physician. A lot of people that I know who decide to be doctors, they go into retirement in their 60s. That's It's over. They made enough money. They banked it. Now, who knows what they're going to do? And I think there, you know, that's a, a, a narrative in our culture, not as I age, I'm going to continue to animate a professional life of some kind or a purpose-driven life. It's time to go to the golf course, right? What do you think about that? I think it's very sad. I think it's very sad that because we'll always have people that we, if, are you talking about physicians? Yeah. Not no, I'm actually more broadly than that. I mean, okay. I see it, I see it all over the place, you know? Yeah, it is. It is all over the place. 
if you think if you come to a point where you think you've lived your life and you're done and you can just play now, well, maybe that's true, but find out what your play is for and what it's going to do for the world. I mean, have a reason if you're going to spend the rest of your life playing, all right, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's it going to do for you and for the rest of the people that you meet? How, how, do, in other words, if life is going to go on, how do we keep it alive? It has to be moving. Life has to move. If it gets stuck someplace, it dies. It can't, life itself is a, a moving energy. And energy has to move. And when that moves, move, it moves with love, no matter what it is that, or who it loves. Maybe, you know, I had a, a, can I tell a story here? Please. Okay. I had a friend and, and he, he was a patient of mine and he moved into dementia. And so we had him in a, a nice home where he was being taken care of. And everything seemed okay. One day I took a little plant over to him and put it in his window. And I said, James, this little plant is your plant, but it's going to need you to take care of him. Now, he didn't know what I was talking about that I could tell. But I said, it's going to need what? You know, I talked to him a little bit about the plant. And that's about as much as I had done. I brought it, gave it to him, and, and left it with him. I came back a week later. And he met me at the door and he said, he was so excited. He said, there's magic here. There's magic here. And I said, oh, well, yeah, well, great. Where? So we go, he takes me over to the, the, uh, the, the air conditioner box. And he points up to that and he says, see, push this button. And the whole room gets cool. And my plant likes it. And he said, you push that button and the room gets hot and my plant doesn't like it. I mean, it, it was just that little plant that gave him a connection to something that was living that he had some control over keeping alive and keeping happy. I mean, I... I I I was in tears when I left because to me that's what life is can and will do if we can see the places any place that you see there's something that you can do that reaches out to somebody else and you know it's sort of like if I have a flashlight and I'm going down this dark path and I, so I can see as far as I could go and so on and so on. But as I walk down that path, if I see to the right or to the left of, of a little light that's flickering, and then I add my light to that light, all of a sudden the other light has great a, a lot more light. It's the ability to be looking not just for your own deep light, but what else is going on around you how you're connected with the world around you. In The Well-Lived Life, you actually cite various 
research studies that have been done that show how when we're on purpose, it affects our health. Oh, it so can and and what I'd love to know is how do you understand that? How is it? I mean, I think people are looking for, you know, is it my diet? Is it the exercise? Is it how much sleep? Is it this or that? And you really come out strong. It's living with being turned on with juice that from your view is such a huge factor in our health. How do you see that directly impacting our longevity and health? I think each one of us is personally in charge of how we use our juice and how we're going to do with what 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 is my own personal life force. Um, my oldest son uh, is a retired orthopedic surgeon, and when he came through Phoenix, he was going down to Del Rio, Texas, to start his practice. And he said to me, Mom, you know, I'm going to go into the world with this amazing work that I have to do. And I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can re realize that this amazing work that you've been trained to do and believe me, if I want, if I have something that re requires orthopedic surgery, I want a good orthopedic surgeon to do the work that he's been trained to do. This is amazing stuff that you've learned and you know how to do. You do it to the best of your ability. And you, in the meantime, you're in the process of, of contacting the physician within the patient who now takes what you're saying and what you're doing and allows it to happen, makes it real. That that physician within that patient becomes your colleague. If that patient doesn't understand and keeps asking you questions, keep answering them the best you can. But you can't make that patient do what you want him to do. You can explain it the best way you can. He may become a, a, a you know a resistant patient, but whatever it is. That patient is has within her whole being a the part the life force the life process that you now have connected with 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 your techniques and the thing that you know how to do and you bring about the ongoing healing process but it's her job to continue that. It's like I gave the little plant to James, but he had to keep watering it. It's it's the importance of understanding that life has to move. It has to keep going or it gets stuck and that we're not alone in this world. We're all in it together. One of the teachings you offer that I thought was so helpful had to do with look for the trickle around the dam, look for the trickle. So as you're talking here about movement, when someone feels stuck in some way, look for the trickle, that trickle of life force. Could you maybe tell me a story of someone you've worked with where 
from the outside, it might look like, wow, this is this case, it's over. And you helped that person, as you did with the story of the plant, find the trickle for themselves that led them uh, really back to health. I have a, pa- a pen- friend and a patient who just died a couple of months ago at the age of eight, 98. No, 80. Wait a minute, 70 de- decades do this in my life now. <laughs> she was 78. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> she had, and I had taken care of her for 50 years with other physicians too, but she had lived her whole life with one quarter of one kidney. That's not possible. That's not possible. None of us physicians could understand how she was doing it. But she always knew that within herself, she would know if something that we suggested for her to do, to use, to work with, would work, she'd try it maybe, or she wouldn't. But she was the one who was in charge of what her body did and how she worked with her body. And um, to me, she's a person who who really constantly her whole life lived living medicine she was in <clears throat> such a, a a deep awareness of what it was that she was doing and she was always the f- person that people <clears throat> excuse me who had gone to a physician and were asking questions she had people come to, for her to have her give an opinion. And sometimes it was what the right along with the doctor, and sometimes it was some, some other thing. But she knew, and I trust, I totally trusted her. I trusted what she said. If she said to me, uh, well, that, yeah, uh, no, uh, I'd, I'd back off. If she says, said to me, yes, I said, well, let's do it this way. And, you know, it was something that that was all through those years that I, I took care of her for 50 years. We always had an ongoing process of her letting me know that she knew what was going on within herself. And it, it's that that. Well, you know, we've what I think one of the big things that we've done wrong in the field of medicine is we've taken away from our patients the their own power, and we've we've kind of let them know that it this can't be fixed if it is if if it, if it wasn't this or that or the other kind of physician or well, I don't think it's a modality. That is the important thing. I think it's there, like orthopedic surgeon or surgery. But the way with which it's done, whether it's done with love or not, is what's important. If the surgeon and the patient can connect with that love flow, there will be healing that will happen. I guarantee it. It just is true. But if there is no love, uh, you can have the best technology in the world, presented in the best way in the world, but it's just empty sound. It's just not going to go through. 
Love is the key that connects. Love is the great healer in all aspects of life. It's a it's a thing that cures a baby's boo-boo when the mama kisses the baby when it hurts. You know, it's 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 the reality of love in action, trickling around the the stream, the whole life stream that's going along gets stuck sometimes. But there's always some little part that's still going. And if we can look for that instead of thinking, oh, well, I'm really stuck and things are, are done, uh, we, we stay stuck because we, don't be lo- we, w- we won't be looking for the light. Now, in your own life, Dr. Gladys, it was very uh, interesting to me to read that when it came to how you approached your own self-healing, that you've gone through two different bouts of cancer and you took very different approaches each time it happened. Can you share a little bit about that and how you were able to ascertain for yourself how to approach the situation? Because life was different both times. What was available to me when I was in my 30s in the way of um, help and what I was doing and what the work was doing and what I was looking for in the way of working with my community and helping them understand what it was that we were talking about was completely different from what I had when I was in my 90s. And the technology had had evolved to a point that was completely different. Breast surgery when I was in my 30s was was brutal. I used to dread scrubbing in on a breast surgery uh, patient, uh, a surgical procedure, because what we did was brutal. It was just getting rid of that cancer was the big thing. But when I was faced with it, when I was in my 90s, we had uh, surgical techniques that that the lump could be removed. The um, radiology could take a pinpoint where they were going to put the the radiology. Instead of um, radiating the whole area, they could get to the very cells that were there. So it was a completely different um, um, procedure. I <clears throat> I went on a thirty day fast when I did the first one. I couldn't I couldn't have done that when I was in my nineties, and so I I created what I could do work, and and it was um, kind of a fun trip because as soon as I got the diagnosis, I came home and I <clears throat> told my lump that was in my breast that uh it what what I was going to do because I you know we had we worked out a procedure and I said <laughs> so I visualized a uh beautiful little hand tooled uh suitcase and I told the and this is all in my visualizations okay I told the lump that it was going to get into this suitcase in in the future. This is what I was going to do. It's going to get into this suitcase. And but in the meantime, it was to call all other uh cancer cells within my body 
to come and join because they were going to go on a family trip. And uh, and when they <clears throat> got them all together there, then I was going to send them on the trip. So when when lump was removed, I said, you're, you know, you're gone. You're on your own trip. Take your, have your fun. It was that kind of a living process that, that I felt was important for me to make the connection with the actual cells within my body. Because what we're learning about stem cells now is that they are aware and they know what they are and what they're supposed to do. I mean, so the, to, to compare what I had available to me in the 30s and what I have available to me now is it's hard to even think about how how far we have advanced in those areas. However, the process is still the same. That inner process of knowing. And that's what I'm curious about, especially for someone who is perhaps listening and is not sure what medical pathway they should take with a difficult diagnosis they've received. And potentially the person's afraid, isn't sure they're thinking clearly about the matter, trying to think clearly about the matter, trying to find their true inner compass, how they move forward. What would you recommend? I'd recommend that they get as much <clears throat> information about the procedure or whatever it is that's going to be done as they can so they understand it. And then put it to their dreams. Put it to that uh, inner aspect of themselves. Get some other information. Look a little farther into the... <clears throat> deeper feelings that you have about what's being proceed about the procedures that are being told or see how you feel about it and if you have questions ask them and if the if the uh provider can give you answers start looking for them yourself in other words don't give up on something just because it's been uh, handed to you as this is the total answer, it may be, but it may be that for you there's another aspect that would add to it or something. You're be, you have a right to become part of the decide the deciding factors which make these decisions. In fact, you have a responsibility to take it in and do with it what you feel is right to do with it. Now, in the example of the breast surgery that you had, and you talked about this very finely created suitcase and how you spoke to the cancer cells lovingly to go on a, on a journey, I think some people have an attitude more of like, okay, we're going to declare war against these invading cells. Do you think if that kind of imagery works for someone that that's valid or no? I think it's limited. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's where conventional medicine has gotten stuck. In the See, I went to medical school just as World War II started. 
I started in 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 uh, September, and the war started in December. And all we were taught was about the killing. We were at war. We were at war. You know, specific things. But medicine got stuck in that too, and medicine, the whole field of medicine, believes that its job is to get rid of disease and pain. And I don't see it that way. In fact, I was well not seeing it that way during the uh, my medical school <laughs> enough that I got sent to the psychiatrist twice because my thinking was wrong and the the dean felt that I had to, if I was going to stay in medicine I had to change my thinking but I had the, the way I had watched my parents work with healing in the jungles of north india with very little in the way of technology but a whole world in the way of love it was a different world that i was coming into and I knew, I knew in my very gut that that love was the important issue here. That, that if I loved my patients, I could get to aspects of their healing process that was different. And now, what we have done is really gotten to the point where we don't, we people don't think we can do anything for ourselves. Like the place that really I worry a lot about and I'm very concerned about is birthing. When I was in medical school, we did what we called twi twilight sleep. And first, in fact, my first two sons were born with this. It was a way of totally anesthetizing the mother so that she was gone. My, my, I was, uh, it was a month, I mean, 24 hours after my sons were born that I knew I had a boy. You know, it was that we were so totally anesthetized that there was no way we could birth our babies. We couldn't push them out. So we delivered them with forceps. And I spent, <clears throat> after I began to understand some things, I have spent a number of years sort of uh, judging myself for how I did that. On the other hand, at that time, it was the only way that that baby could get out is with the help of the doctor and the forceps. I could, I, I was good at it. Uh, you know, I could help a mother with baby with an after coming head deliver properly so we did our work and we did it well but in the process of doing that what we have done has been to take away from our feminine self our basic human power to do what we can do as women we don't you know, I'm I'm trying hard to say that I didn't help uh, deliver a baby. We deliver pizza. We deliver uh, speeches. We don't deliver babies. Our job is to help mothers birth their babies. And I think that it's a huge shift 
that we need to reclaim. It doesn't mean that I don't have a part in the birthing process. I'm there to help her with the birthing, but I'm not doing the birthing. Each mother herself has within her the power to do the birthing. And, and that's, that's not only her right, it's her glory. It's what we women do best is to birth babies. And so in, in, in the, the scheme of life's process, I think there are things which in our, actually in our ignorance, we have, have uh, judged things so that we think that we have, as physicians, that we have to take charge of doing this and then it's our responsibility. You know, I kind of think it's, this is just my idea, that when God, whatever God is to whoever you are, uh, when he created the earth, he created the earth and it was beautiful. I mean, everything was lovely and so on. And then he created the human being. And he said to us, this is, your, you're the only living thing on this earth that has free will and choice. You humans, you human people are the only things that have free will and choice. Now, I turn over to you the whole process of taking care of that. I give you dominion over the earth. And we thought, he said, dominance. So we thought, oh, yeah, goody, goody. We can do anything we want to with all this earth stuff. And we've literally taken over the earth's juices and, and, and betrayed her. So I think if we, I, I think what people are looking for in the way of healing that I'm hearing from and that I, the aspect that I understand is that we're re-reaching for our true humanity. It's like E.T., he wanted to go home, you know? It's that inner core within us that is really saying, I'm a human being. I have this amazing power that nothing else, else on earth has. But with that power, it's to take care of, not to take and do with. Sure. But let me ask you a question, Dr. Gladys, when it comes to bringing love to ourselves, to our cells, to our body that might be suffering from an illness. I've seen situations where people that I know with all sincerity apply all the love they have and it doesn't stop the disease process. The disease marches on and they die. And from the outside, you could say, that didn't work. And I'm curious what your, what your view is of that. In your case, in your 90s, you've had remarkable uh, results from your own work with your own life force and body. But it's not always like that. And it, well, I still don't. You know, I have trouble with my eyes. I can't see well at all but there's 
there's trouble with my eyesight, but there's nothing wrong with my insight. But the point being that that's, that's true. I love working with patients who have chronic illnesses that they'll never get rid of. There are thousands and thousands of people who have chronic illnesses. Franklin Del Roosevelt had uh, post-polio syndrome. Did it stop him? No. I mean, it depends on... <clears throat> See, I think everything in life is a teacher. And I think that there are... Some, some of us have disease processes which we'll never get over. But what is that trying to teach us? I was born with dyslexia. I, you know, I, I couldn't read and write. I had to repeat first grade and all that stuff. But I, I still, I've learned how to read. I had to, to get to medical school. I don't know how I did it. And uh, at one time, there were 10 of us doctors sitting around a table, holistic doctors, the American Holistic Medical Association. And we realized that of the 10 of us, six of us were dyslexic. Well, you see what we t looked at ourselves and we said, how did you learn to read? And I. I said, uh, I really don't know, but I did. And what we realized was that there had, the reason we started alternative medicine was there was an alternative way, of not only learning to read, but how we were looking at medicine. And so it's that ability to see that if we're stuck someplace along the line, there is a way out. However, sometimes our soul is saying to us, no, there is this place that you need to understand is here for a reason. And what's the reason? You know, what is it that the, that is behind the whole process? I don't know what Roosevelt learned from his disease. I don't know what this friend of mine that had one quarter of one kidney learned from her disease, but I know she learned how to live. I know she lived to be, be 79 years old and uh, had a baby and lived her life and all of that. But so it's not that you have to get rid of the disease. You have to... I think the process is finding what the disease is telling us, whether it's a, it's one that we could get over quickly or whether it's one that has deep, deep lessons that we need to learn. You've talked about how you believe the greatest medicine is love. And Absolutely. you mentioned seeing your parents operate as physicians. Can you tell us more about your parents? Introduce them to us and how they impacted you, their work you mentioned uh, in India. Well, um, my dad was a Kansas farmer, and uh, but he always wanted to be a, a doctor. He had that within him. But his father was in the uh, Spanish-American War and came home injured and couldn't so my dad was the oldest son and had to stay there until he uh, until his brother was old enough to take over the farm and help the mother and so on. So when that happened, he got a, a 
opportunity to go to, to medical school in Chicago. When he got, when he went to get on the train, he put his suitcase up on the, up in, in, into the train, but he did something to his back. So he was walking down the aisle in the train, kind of limping, and there was a man sitting there in one of the benches who said to him, um, what's the problem? And my dad said, I hurt my back when I was putting my suitcase. And he said, well, we're going through Kirksville, Missouri. Now, this is uh, 1911. It would be about that time. Going through Kirksville, Missouri. And there's a doctor there who's started a new medical school. His name is A.T. Still. And I suggest that you get off and uh, go and fly. I think he might help you. My dad did. He went, A.T. Still helped him. He went to school there and got his degree in osteopathy. And my mother had a similar experience where she got into medical school. And they then, with <clears throat> the uh, information and the technology that they got from A.T. Still, and then my dad took a whole uh, year in ophthalmology on top of that, went to India as medical missionaries. And we, I grew up there. My mother went into labor with me at the Taj Mahal. I think she must have been kind of a little late, you know, queen of drama queen or something. But because <laughs> I, I love the idea that she went into labor with me at the Taj Mahal. Anyway, we lived in the villages of North India, and my parents went from one village to the next to the next with their medical work and took this kind of, of healing with them that had very little in the way of, of technology, but trunk full of love. And no matter what the patient was, not how dirty they were or how sick they were or what, my parents treated them with love. And it was that whole aspect that I saw working as I was growing up. And it's what I have known right from the start is the essence of what healing is all about. You write in your book, The Well-Lived Life, our life force is yes. activated by love. And I wrote that sentence down because I can imagine someone's listening to us. Yeah, healing and love, you know, whatever. But what's the mechanism? How does it work? How do you know? But yet our life force is activated by love. And I think people can relate to that. And you go further to talk about how if we're in a situation where we're feeling afraid, that if we can activate our love, that activates our love force. Can you share with me in your own life a situation where you felt afraid and chose to invest instead in love and how that activated your life force? Oh my, it's happened so many times. <clears throat> but the the biggest fear that I had was when Bill, my husband, asked for a divorce. And uh, we had started, we had an amazing life and I was, really happy with it and all. 
and then all of a sudden he asked for a divorce. This and is after after 46 years together, yeah? And six children and the ARE clinic and the holistic movement, all the things that we had done together, you know, all of a sudden they were just thrown into the universe. I really didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I was I was floundering. I was I I fortunately my youngest daughter was just getting into medicine and had started with us at the, at the clinic before Bill asked. So we started our own practice. So fortunately, I had something that I had to do. But my core was just shattered. And I, at this one point, I was going from my office to my home in Casa Grande it was an hour's drive, and I was screaming. I, I was screaming at the universe. I was screaming, you don't know how hard it is to live here. You just don't, you know, I was really, I don't, it was just awful. But I was driving, and I was I was angry, and I was scared and, and hurt and uh, totally damaged. I felt so fragile. And then all of a sudden I pulled the my car off to the side of the road because in my mind there was this verse, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us re rejoice and be glad in it. And I sat in that car and I thought, okay, your name is Gladys. Be glad, be glad. And then I realized, Okay, I can do something here. And I went home and I changed my license plate to be glad so that every time I got into my car, I could say to myself, I was going to be glad. And that every in town, so I had that same uh, license plate until I stopped <clears throat> my practice. But anybody who came up behind me, was being faced with a license plate that said, be glad. In other words, what I was able to do was to get hold of that trickle of life force that was going down the stream and just, uh, I, I, I was going to nothingness. I mean, I was just total nothingness. But it wasn't nothingness. It was that that little bit of knowing that I could even hear within my own soul the verse that I had obviously learned when I was a kid, but but it came to me with the two words, be glad. And so that turned me. It 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 it, it I realized that I needed to change changed from this awful fear that was consuming me and really hurting me. Uh, it, it, yeah. And put it into something that I could actually see happen. And so if we can take the slightest little thing and hang on to it, something that has life in it, some words that are some child, some 
some plant, some some dog, some patient, some you know something that is a living force that you can reach back and forth from, so that you can feed each other from this. Then you are released, not released. Then then you can move through the fear into the whole love process, and the fear can just sit up on the shelf and feel bad for itself. All right. But Dr. Gladys, let's address that person who's listening right now, who's in the scream in their own life. They're in the outrage about something, or they're listening to this and like, I don't know how to do this without it feeling phony. It would feel phony, be glad, or, you know, find the lesson. Like, no, I'm, I'm upset. I don't know how to, I don't know how to make that move in a genuine way. What would you recommend? Keep trying. Keep trying. Because just because you can't find it at that moment doesn't mean that it's not there. Uh, one of the things I learned from my dad, I was quite young, and I don't know what I was doing, but I remember he, I said, well, I quit. And he, he was standing there, and he, he looked at me and he said, are you a quitter? And I can see those black eyes looking at me and say, are you a quitter? That was as bad as saying, are you a liar? And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not a quitter. And I went back to doing whatever it was that I was working with. But it was being able to connect the pieces so that the jigsaw puzzle is whole. You know, you the fact that when you're in that awful space of the fear is so great, you feel so alone. You feel like, well, nobody else understands how bad it is. You know, my my pain is worse than your pain and all of that kind of stuff, which is true because it's our, our personal stuff. But that doesn't mean that we can't find the deep within ourselves and within the world around us something that will say, be glad, you know? Something that had to say to me, be glad. It was that that inner knowing and hearing it that grabbed me. So, but we have if we're not looking for it, we'll never see it. If we're not listening for it, we'll never hear it. If we don't care, if we want to stay stuck, and the fear is so great that we feel that we absolutely to terribly possibility cannot get out of it, we'll stay there. But if we can just grab hold of some some glimmering of something that we can say is real or that makes sense to us. That's why I came up with these five L's that I talk about. The first L is life. If without life, nothing else comes you know we have to be alive but that life by itself can't do anything it's like the seed in the pyramid it's there for five thousand years and it's never been able to do anything it got all the energy of the universe within its shell but it can't do anything until love in the form of water and sunlight and so on breaks the shell and then the two become one. 
it's it, and at which point life starts life starts to grow it's like the sperm and the ovum by themselves they really don't amount to much you know but together they become a person but they don't become a person until they grow into that so and then the the third l is laughter laughter without love is cruel it's mean it it, it takes families apart you know but laughter with love is joy and happiness the fourth l is labor labor without love is drudgery oh man i gotta go to work too many diapers you know all this whatever it is it's just too much it's just too hard but labor with love is bliss you know you 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 do the diapers because you love the baby you you sing because you sing you do this work that you created because it makes your heart glow you know it's it's what it's what brings bliss to us the painter paints the, the singer sings the, the doctor because you know it's that inner juice that's there it's our bliss and the fifth one is is listening listening without love is empty sound you know you you can try to teach somebody something and if they're not listening they're not going to hear it they, it's just empty sound clanging gong but listening with love is understanding it's that taking it in and making sure that you understand what it is that you're listening for and for me i i was looking for some kind of a uh visual way in which i could put this concept in place and these five l's have have helped me with that beautiful teaching dr gladys now i have two two final questions for you i pulled this quote from a well-lived life a belief in reincarnation guides much of what I do on earth as a doctor, mother, grandmother, and human being. And I thought to myself, huh, I wonder how this conviction about reincarnation has informed how you approach life. Well, you know, <clears throat> my parents really didn't like that when Bill and I started talking about it because they had been sort of preaching against it in India and uh and didn't and really thought it was the wrong thing so we had our family issues on that but we had uh gotten into the Edgar Casey readings which is a whole new page of history which um explained it in a way that actually brought some reason into why things happened why a person has a, a, an illness that they can't get rid of and then they come back probably and they may still have aspects of that illness because they really haven't gotten the whole lesson that goes with that illness you know it's that kind of a that life is a continuum and we have we meet the people that we meet we we live the ways that we do well 
I don't think it's something that's, that's essential. I still, you know, it was Jesus who helped me bring get my voice back when I had a dream with him up in a tree, you know. I'm still a committed Christian to the work that I'm doing. But then um, my, uh, my husband talked to my dad one time and said, well, you know, Jesus said that that um, John the Baptist was Elijah. So, I mean, you know, there, there are statements in the Bible that you can pick and find that you, it can validate the, the teachings. So it, it's what works for you. If it doesn't work for you, but how has it impacted you? How has it changed how you look at? That's what I'm trying to understand is, you know, for people who are like, hmm, I'm not sure, how has it impacted you? It gives me understanding about why some people can't hang on to their illnesses and why certain illnesses are like karmic illnesses and why for me in my life and in the people that have been born into my family, have been I I in fact I can trace in my own awareness things that I believe I was I not things but uh, people that I believe that I learned when I was in a lifetime such and such and such and such can you share some of that with us no, Dr. Gladys okay that's fine yeah. uh, it's it's personal that's I've fine I respect from, that totally yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but there, I think it's not gospel. I mean, I would, I don't, I don't preach it, but it makes sense to me. And uh, for me, I have to kind of understand stuff in order to work with it. That's why I came up with the five bells and the and the be glad and all this kind of stuff. There are things that have helped me learn the lessons which. I don't think I'm done learning yet, you know. I mean, I came up with something just the other day that gave me a whole new look on on certain aspects of my life. And so it's a the beauty of it is when you're looking for it, you find it. You know, and if you're not looking for it, you'll never find it. If you're all always looking over over your shoulder for the bad stuff that happened to you, it's going to keep on. But if you look up for the light, look towards, you'll, it, it'll just, you know, it'll go, it'll just be there. Now, you're going to turn 103 later this year. And I read that even at this age, you have a 10 year plan that you develop a 10 year plan for your life. And I thought to myself, really? God, I think a lot of people they're, you know, they're they're just planning their you know, uh their funeral at that point. They're not making a 10 year, you know, life plan. So tell me about that. I I envision a village for living medicine any place on this earth where people want to do it. I, I, it's a, a village where when a person steps on the land, the healing starts. It's a place where like-minded people who believed 
in life and love and the heal, healing aspect of life and love become part of the very essence of the place that it, it plays attention to mother earth and how she's working with this that it is something that is a living process and uh i have kind of a little sketch that i have that i envision but it can happen where where any person's group of people who have the same loving, living, laughing, hopeful future that they work towards are gathered together. Hopefully, it'll start with a loving birth center where the, the very conception and the whole birthing process is one where the baby enters a world of love not a world of fear so it's not cold uh fear that the baby comes into a world with it comes into a world where fear or where love and and concern are the things that welcome uh the baby i remember i had a family in up in the hospital here in in uh, phoenix one time and they the mother had five other children and she wanted them in the in the uh, birthing room when the baby was born and when the baby was born they sp simultaneously began singing happy birthday and the nurses and i were all in tears you know i mean it was that kind of a overpowering feeling of love and and welcoming and here's this baby comes out and these being welcomed by all of this loving birth in other words having that kind of thing manifest spontaneously in a place where that's where it grows a, a village for living medicine and it can be any place in this earth where people of like mind gather together and really understand the depth to which we can reach and the height to which we could grow and become living people in this whole process. But Dr. Gladys, what if someone says, God, you know, 10 years from now, I mean, what are the odds that you're gonna be alive to see that? I mean, really, is it realistic to, to have a 10 year vision at your age? What, I mean, do you, do you not even think that way? Like, I'm not gonna think that way. What, what, what difference is it gonna make? I'll live as long as I need to. And then I'll, you know, I'll make the transition and who knows what I'll do next. But my soul isn't going any place. It's my soul is a living thing. And so it'll, it'll stay as long as it needs to. I've been speaking with Dr. Gladys McCary at age 102. She's released a new book. It's called The Well-Lived Life a 102-year-old doctor's six secrets to health and happiness. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after-show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. 
Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.